Well, another good morning to you, Radiant Church. My name's Tom, and if you have a Bible, could you turn to the book of 1 Samuel? We're starting a uh, little mini-series today called The Feel of Faith. We're in a church that has got a big vision. You might have kind of picked up on that. We, we are a church that is thrilled that there's hundreds of children in our church. We are thrilled that God is calling us to believe for another radiant church down the road in Tulare. We're thrilled that there's a potentially big building project that the plant in Tulare could be inheriting immediately. We're thrilled that there are dozens and dozens of you signing up to do parties and packs. We're thrilled that this is not a church that is sleepy and small-minded and playing it safe. Amen? Uh, amen? We want to catch something of the Lion of Judah's heart who is roaring over this world and he is not asleep and he is not a God of small plans and he is not a God who just gives us things to do that we can manage in and of our own strength. He deliberately calls each and every single one of us, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's as a parent, whether it's in your singleness, whether you're old or young, whether you're rich or poor, he calls each of us to follow him. And as we follow him, if you're a Christian here today, by definition, you need faith to follow him. The walking on water deal was a moment for Peter. It's meant to be a lifestyle for you and me. So the Christian life is not meant to be comfortable. It's not meant to be doable in and of your own strength. It's not meant to be something that you can kind of have a four-year plan and work out what you're going to be doing and how you're going to be doing it. That is rationalism. It's humanism. It's, it's materialism. It's what this world is built on. We are built as Christians on a living, resurrected Savior who is with us, and by Him we can advance against a troop. We can scale a wall. We can see the dead raised. Those who are sick healed. And our children discipled into being giant slayers. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Faith is the currency of the Christian life. It says in the Bible, this terrifying thing, this is a throwaway line, without faith it's impossible to please God. So I want to appeal to you to listen up as we walk into this little short series on looking at what I've called the feel of faith. And the reason I've called it that is because when you look in perhaps the great chapter in the Bible about what is faith, verse 1 starts with a concept, a statement. You know, faith is being uh, sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And it's like the writer, inspired by the Spirit, realizes, although that's true and that's good and our brain's going, try and work it out, it can, if we just live a life where we're trying to work things out in terms of statement of truth, prepositions, we can leave us a little cold. And actually the rest of Hebrews 11 is what? It's stories. It's stories that unpack that one point. And there's a huge principle there that we often in the West actually totally ignore. The fact is we are hardwired as humans made in the image of God to learn, yes, by statements, but also by stories. It is both. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at one simple statement a week. We could spend a whole year on this. Just one simple statement a week about faith. And then we're going to jump into a glorious story in the Scriptures that unpacks it and brings it to life and takes it from here to here. 
we're going to look at some glorious stories. And this week, we're going to look at the, the beginning place, I think, when we think about a subject like faith, which is this, hearing by faith. Do you know, if you're a Christian here today, it is your inheritance that cost Jesus Christ dying in agony on a cross and then rising again. His inheritance package for you through all of that, one part of it, was that you would actually hear God. You would hear Him. But if you're anything like me, for much of my Christian life, when people talked about hearing God, a couple of things came to mind. Number one, I tended to think, well, I don't feel like I hear God, Tom. I don't feel that. And number two, I'd also think, I don't really think it's that important. You know, I think I've got a a reasonable life as this young Christian 20 years ago when I came to faith. And for years and years and years, I'd hear occasionally Christians talk about hearing God say this and hearing him say that. And I, I I did not feel like I heard him. And I thought, well, surely if God's going to speak to me, I'd know about it, right? And I don't feel like a hearer at all. And number two, I don't think it's that important. You know, we believe that God has spoken once and for all through the Bible. And just so you know, we are an absolutely Bible-loving church, evangelical through and through. We do believe this is the perfect inspired Word of God, always profitable for teaching and training and rebuking righteousness. Hallelujah! It is glorious. However... We also believe that this book compels us to expect that we would have a living relationship through the living word. That it's not that we worship Father, Son, and Holy Bible, but we come through the word of God to a living God. That it's something that that fuels our faith to actually know him. So today, I want to go to war, unashamedly, in the best sense, in our hearts where there may be even just a teeny weeny bit of unbelief, lack of faith when it comes to hearing our God. Because this is my deep conviction. We, we I do not know what God is saying to you. Only God knows that. You, nobody can say categorically you know, throughout your life, this is what God's saying. There's moments where God inspires each of us to speak to one another through the prophetic. But ultimately, God has plans for each of you. So there's only so much sort of management of church one can do. In essence, our great, our great vision is that every man, woman, and child in this church would be ultimately saying two things. Number one, what are you saying to me today, God? What are you saying? And number two, what am I doing about it? And if we could have an army of men, women, and children who are genuinely equipped to believe that I can hear God, and in fact, it's imperative and vital I hear God, I believe with all my heart, we have barely begun to see what the Lord can do. When you have that cocktail, that culture that can't be constrained, when you have that in a family, my word, Sundays are great, but they're just one tiny tip of the iceberg. When you think about what he will be doing through each of us as we leave this place and as we live our normal lives that are actually anything but normal because the king of the universe is speaking to us. So let's read this glorious story today. And as we do this, I, wanna, I just want to say this before we read it. The use of imagination is one of the most vital things that you can pursue as a Christian. 
It sounds a bit old-fashioned. We live in a screen-dominated age, don't we? You go to a restaurant and there's like thousands of screens everywhere. You can't even have a conversation without 50 things going on around you. And screens have, in many ways, robbed us of the eyes of faith because we're so used to relying on physical eyes. And so you might be someone who actually, you know, is into like physical workout, but I'm asking us today to give ourselves for the next 30 minutes to an imagination workout. That the eyes of your heart, as we read this scripture, you would ask yourself this question, listen, who am I in this story? Where am I in this story? What would it have felt like to have been there? What would it have smelt like? What would it have been like to be in this moment? And it is my deep belief and conviction that one of the most overlooked aspects of our walk is that we simply skate over the great stories of the Bible. 70% of the Bible is narrative, apparently. Because God knows, although we do learn in the abstract through points, most of us learn even more through the concrete way of learning, through story. Through hearing a story that God has allowed us to live in and to marinate ourselves in and to own and to become your story and my story. That is the great goal. As Eugene Peterson says, a God-drenched imagination. And then what happens when that, when that starts to really take root in a community where the stories from the Word are not just these vague stories, but they're living, they're active. What actually happens is you don't just get one neat application point for all of us to agree on. You get hundreds. Because little details and little aspects catch our imagination. And the Spirit says, notice that, Neva. See that, Danny. You're there. So I want us to approach this very act of reading it in faith. So come Holy Spirit as we read this beautiful story that took place in one night. This story about a little boy and an old man. A little boy near the beginning of his life and an old man nearing the end of his time. Speak to us. Great King of eternity through your beautiful word. Amen. Chapter 3, verse 1. As we go into this, just to say, these two main figures dominate this story. Samuel, probably 11 or 12, and this other main character, Eli, probably 70, 80, maybe older. And the scene, as we're about to see, is this tabernacle. It's almost temple-like. And this young boy is now living with Eli and his family. You might even want to just actually close your eyes and let the, the reading of the Word wash over you. Reading it's great, but hearing it, woo! somehow the fireworks can go off. So just receive this. We're going to divide it in two, just half, and then we'll make some comments, and then we'll look at the second half. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. 
One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And then the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, Oh, no, I I didn't call. Go back. Lie down. It's the middle of the night. So he went and lay down. And then again, the Lord called. Samuel! And Samuel got up and he went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me? My son, Eli said, I I didn't call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel a third time. And Samuel now got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. And then Eli realized that the Lord, the Lord was calling the boy. And so Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so Samuel went and lay down in his place. And then the Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, this time twice, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. So act one, act one, wake up, act one, (laughs) sneaky dose, act one is this incredibly beautiful scene of this young boy, Samuel, and this extraordinary, almost comical uh, kind of interplay between him and God. Between him and God, although he thinks it's between him and Eli. And I love it because obviously, just to, just to make the obvious points, um, this is not the spiritual time of the day. You know, these guys, are, it says at the beginning, they ministered before the Lord. So, you know, these are like, he's part of the priestly family that's been mentioned earlier on. And they've been doing spiritual things in the day, religious activities all day, doing sacrifice reading the Bible, spiritual stuff. And then they get into the pajamas and it's lights out time. And, and in they go, you know, I don't know what those pajamas would have been like in those days, but picture the scene with me. Picture the scene. He's lying down. His body's as relaxed as it can be on a temple type thing floor. And the lamp, I love that little phrase, the lamp of the Lord is still burning. It's almost like Narnia or something. You know, the, what's it called? The, light thing. 
Lamppost, yeah. Been away from England too long. The lamppost. And you see this incredible picture of this little boy. And this tenderness. Do you sense the tenderness, the tone of God's voice to him? He doesn't download, you know, it's not broadcast, it's conversation. Some of us, when we think about the voice of God, we, I know for me, I wrongly always thought that if this was God's voice, if it was really real, the God who made the Grand Canyon and California and all of the wonders of the world, if he was going to speak to me, surely it would be unmistakable, right? That just is logically got to be true. If God is real and I now know him, surely when he speaks to a human, the one thing that it, it won't be is easy to be confused with something else. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Why on earth would such a majestic, powerful being like God, if he bothers to speak to someone, it would surely be something that was like utterly and completely unmistakable. And I guarantee many of you here in your lives, you're like Samuel. He ministers to the Lord. He goes to church. You know, he's around the Christian faith. But it's so easy to be in that situation and yet make the fatal mistake that this story addresses that the voice of God needs to be something and is something unmistakable. One of the whole points of this story is the voice of God, can I say this, is mistakable. As crazy as that sounds, it actually is mistakable. But then isn't that our God? The God who chooses to come through a teenage girl in a mistakable town, not even in a proper hospital type thing or whatever they had, but in the middle of this scene, you know, this stable scene. Mistakable. Overlookable. Well, the kingdom of God is like what? Like a mighty army? No, it's like a mustard seed. What? It's like, a, it's like a tiny thing you could easily overlook. Isn't that amazing? The hope of the world, the church of Jesus. Wow, that's terrifying. No disrespect. But when you look at the world out there and then you think of the church, let's be honest, we're not that impressive, most of us. Overlookable. I love this. Don't miss this. Some of you have lived years of your life with this one point. Actually, you've made an agreement where you think, yeah, I, I don't think I hear God. And that lie has settled on your soul. It, you, you know, comparison creeps in. Oh, I'm not like those guys who confidently stand up here and go, today God said this to me. Oh, I'm not like Sean who just is so spiritual. I can't even play the guitar. You know, my voice is awful. I've got no hope of hearing God. I want to say this. I love this. The voice of God, he just says one word and then waits. So unlike me. Ask my wife or my kids. Well, you can probably tell anyway. One word and then waits. Isn't that amazing? One mistakable word that he thought was someone else. Oh, the humility of God. Oh, the beauty of our King. Doesn't it stir your heart? The wonder that in your average day, as you get in your car, as you leave this building, 
which is no more spiritual a place than anywhere else, as you get in your normal life, the same mistakable voice of God could, just could, be crouching throughout your day, wanting to whisper to you. I mean, I don't know if there's anything better in life. When this starts to really grip your soul, you think, if this is true, that God is speaking. It's not that God isn't speaking, it's that He is speaking, but that I just have this weird expectation that it's going to be this like, an unmistakable thing, but actually, the whole of the Bible talks about a humble God. The whole of the Bible is that God put on flesh and humbly came in a way that no one would have ever predicted. There was nothing about Jesus that to write about physically. He was a normal guy who had a fairly short life. And he didn't fill stadiums with millions of people. He invested in 12 guys and one of them betrayed him. Do you see the feel of the gospel? I love it. It's, it's encaptured in this one beautiful element of the way that God speaks. Guys, this is amazing news. Sorry, I think it's really exciting. Thank you. Man, this is orthodox Christianity. This is, this, this is so huge for some of you. I feel like stopping and just saying, let's worship the voice that you can overlook. Because if, if that's true, and if even just one of you leaves today with just a mustard seed of faith, that your life is not random. Your life, you are, you know that thing of, uh, uh, this is a cheesy note, a uh, cheesy image, but you know, uh, sometimes when you get, well, when not, some couples who are really good at romance and everything leave little post-it notes. You know those post-it notes, those sticky notes thing around the house, and you open up the thing, it's like, I love you, and you're like, oh, Josie. I wish I could say we did it for each other. We don't really, but God leaves notes throughout your day, and so many of us, so many of us don't actually really ever even see them. I believe that this tenderness of, the, of God here. Oh, friends, I'm not tender to you. I'm sweaty and hot. And I'm limited. And I can get grumpy at the smallest things. Your God is not like that. He adores you. And what I love about this picture is that Samuel, see, you might think Samuel, maybe he's this squeaky clean choir boy type figure. Samuel had had a really pretty horrible life up until this point. This little boy who's maybe 10 or 11 or 12, this is not some twee little story. Like, oh, wasn't it nice for him? He had had a really tough life. If you know anything about his story, Oh my word, does it sound familiar to Visalia, California in the 21st century. Very odd, dysfunctional upbringing. I mean, his is really unusual. There were two mums in his life. He had, he had a natural mum and then her husband had another wife. They, and, and his mum was infertile. And so the, the mental illness that she suffered, the grief that she went through is all over 1 Samuel, pouring out the grief. His mom grew up with a, a huge, scarring season in her life. But to make it worse, the other woman that her husband was married to, Peniah, oh, she had kids. And she loved, she loved 
to rub the salt in the wound as that woman, year upon year, was unable to give birth. And then the story goes that she, in her agony, cries out to God, if you will just give me a child, if you will do that, I will actually, I will then give him back to you. And he can then serve in the temple in a different town. And I will give him away. I mean, ah! And amazingly, God says, okay. He grants her Samuel. She has the joy of, of having him for a while. And then I think the agony of having to go through with what she committed to God. Think about that. Samuel may have remembered his parents handing him over. It says she visited Shiloh every single year and it says she made him a little robe every year. Imagine the, just the agony. You know, I give Daisy away. And she, she would have been like, so you made this vow to God? And then God said yes, and I'm here. And, and not only was the family I grew up in a little bit strange because my dad seemed passive and insensitive. You were grief-stricken and my other mum-type figure was really horrible. You've now given me away into this priestly family which in the previous chapter has just received a curse from God because they were so sinful. It's shocking. It's like out of the frying pan into the fire. That's Samuel's first decade on planet Earth. Pain. Pain. Which means when we come to this story and we start to see perhaps ourselves as people who have been marked by pain. I love the Word because the Word of God, the Bible, doesn't, it doesn't expect you to have a life free from pain. In a sense, you could almost argue that these first few chapters are telling us about the very soil in which faith will sprout. Faith, hearing by faith. His soul. Can you imagine, it says, it says about his mum that after she gave him away, the Lord blessed her with five kids. Think about Sam, you're Samuel, you're 9, 10, 11. Your parents have given you away. And then you hear about her giving birth again and again and all that family growing. I would have felt totally abandoned and totally fearful that my mum was going to forget me. I mean, this little kid has so many emotions that must have been going on in his soul when this night happens. This night, when he would have felt relationally so abandoned, I think, by just about everyone in his life. Maybe that's you. Maybe, actually, you may not be 11 years old. You may be older than that. But you've actually tasted something of what Samuel's been through. And perhaps you've actually not realized that that has actually impacted just a little bit your faith that you would ever hear this dad in heaven who allowed so much pain in your life. That affects us. It effect, would have affected Samuel. He wasn't this squeaky clean from, a, from a, a white collar background. He had grown up in an incredibly broken family in a way and been brought into an even worse family where he wouldn't have felt protected. He would have felt so vulnerable as his, this Eli guy so far has not been a great figure. He's been a coward. 
God has rebuked him for it. He said, your sons are out of control. They're totally offensive to the whole of the, to Israel and to me, so I'm stopping it. That's the new dad he has. And so you see, you then come to this night. And, and, and we don't just see it as some twee story that some of us know. It's a story for this young boy of a lifeline. It's a lifeline for him. It's a lifeline. Where else is he going to go? He has no one in his life he can depend on. There's no one he can actually rely on. His older brothers and his new family are a nightmare. His new dad is a nightmare. His mum has given him away and in a way that's honourable, but it would have caused huge questions in his head, no doubt. In that moment where you feel totally alone, Maybe you're in a marriage and you thought you were going to feel totally close to someone. Actually, you feel like you don't even know them. Maybe you are someone who, for whatever reason, you are in this situation where you think, I feel so actually alone. I want to say to you, if you don't believe that God speaks to you, if you don't believe that, hopelessness can come crashing in. And I want to say this, that pain, there is dignity to Samuel's pain. There is dignity to your pain. There is dignity to it. Because I believe somehow in the way that only God in his mystery can allow, that pain somehow can prepare us to actually somehow walk in faith to God in a way that when life is just all high-fiving and great, that the voice of God even has less chance. Maybe you've misdiagnosed your pain. Maybe you felt, I'm not good enough. I'm not cool enough. I don't know the Bible well enough. I am not old enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not whatever enough. Man, I feel God wants to almost kick this lectern over in joy and love over you and say, listen, this is my way I work. This was not a one-off with Samuel. This little boy who'd grown up in pain. This is the way I operate today. Where are you in the story? Where are you? What would the Lord be saying to you? But we must move on. Because the story then concludes in an incredible way. um, Which leads us not just to the conclusion of hope that God can speak to us. But I want to finish by really saying this. It's not just that he can. It's that we must hear him. There's a look as we read the second part of the night and into the morning. And almost the, the, the atmosphere changes from just an encouragement that no matter the pain you've been through, you can hear God, which is pastoral and wonderful. Hallelujah. But this second half almost shifts into a slightly more mission-focused thing. There's a wonderful end game to the hearing of God. Look at what happens when Samuel hears God he doesn't bounce out of his chair and start doing the wrong thing and talking to humans. He, lie, he stays lying, listening to God, and then does the right thing with it. Look at the impact. And look at how much God uses a, a little boy that we could easily overlook. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. And at that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him, 
that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible. He failed to restrain them. And therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. (sighs) Wow. I wonder if Samuel was expecting God to say that. (laughs) Speak, Lord. Your servant's listening. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid, understandably, to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and he said, Samuel, my son. And Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked, and do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. Well, so Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. And then Elijah said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. And the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. So what this amazing second half does, it's like it gathers pace. It gathers pace. It starts with the lamp of the Lord, and it's almost this unhurried, scene-setting introduction. But once... God gets Samuel's attention. It's like he treats him like a man. Do you notice that? He doesn't give him like, your destiny will be, you know, like we would want for our kids. Bring in a prophet and prophesy over my 10-year-old all these sugary nice things about their life and how they're going to be like, you know, world changers. And I'm not against that. I mean, I'm slightly mocking it, but you know what I'm saying? We want these kind of rocket-fueled personal words for our lives where we say, you know, particularly in your younger years, Lord, who am I? Tell me about my life. When we have prophecies and stuff, we invariably want God to speak about who I am and what I'm going to be doing. Do you notice, though, that the nature of what God actually says to him after he's been so tender and gentle, we then see this other side of God where the weight of this word given to a 10 or 11-year-old is anything but like, hey, Samuel, You're just a great lad. I know you've had a tough life, but I want tonight just to say to you, I just love you so much. It's like God. God gives him this this second occurrence of this word that Eli's already had. Isn't that amazing? He says, I've already said this to Eli. I love the way he, he says that to Sam. He's like, don't panic. Eli already knows that I'm unfortunately having to bring some judgment in his life. But I am telling you now, I want you to be aware of that. And so we see after this pretty weighty word, Samuel lies in bed, I'm sure eyes open, probably can't sleep. What on earth do I do with this thing? I love it because one of the criticisms about Eli that God says to him is this, you won't tell the truth to your boys. That's what's happened. Your boys are just out of control and you will not speak the truth to them. That's why God has just said to Eli in the previous chapter, 
it's, uh, it's over. You can't minister on my behalf if you will not tell the truth. That's why, he's, that's why Eli and his boys are ultimately, uh, that generation is ending because they will not tell the truth. But do you see here the contrast with this little boy? He's like David. He's got this giant slang faith in him. For him, hearing God was not just some nice little thing. You're like, yeah, I can hear God. Hallelujah. That's cool. It's like, oh my word, I've now got this word that I, I, have, a, I have a choice. Either I hold on to it like Eli did, and that's why he was judged. Either I'm a coward. Either I won't take a risk. Either I will live in my comfort zone and never actually take a risk. Or when God speaks to me, This is the biggest thing on planet earth. When God speaks to a man or a woman or a child, it's the biggest thing on earth. It's bigger than whatever's been said over your life. Even by your parents, even by your friends, even by people who you know. When God speaks over your life, even if it's not about you directly, God watches. What will Samuel do? Will he be like Eli, who was a coward? Or will he bravely say, I really don't want to say this, but I think God's saying this. I think God's saying this. And for some of you here today, your heart's going right now because you know God's spoken to you. And there are times in your life where you have stepped out. You know that moment (gasps) where you're stepping out, where God speaks to you and you know there's something you need to do as a result. Some of you, you've had that and then you've just let it fall away. Maybe it wasn't even for someone else. Maybe it was over your life. There was a weighty thing that God said for you, not for anyone else, but for whatever reason. That's why Jesus said, be careful how you listen. You must listen well. That's why he repeatedly said, listen, have ears to hear, let him hear. Isn't that amazing? The church of Jesus Christ is called to be those who know the voice of our lover, the, the voice of our, of our groom. You know, when Josie says, Tom, I hear it. God's saying he wants us to be a people who don't just enjoy the voice of God, but understand that as a result of our stewarding, what we think, as best we can tell, God may have said. As we steward that in faith, feeling scared, feeling vulnerable, wanting another, another fleece, please, Lord, another clarification, if you wouldn't mind. No, no, no. There's, there's faith. It's got to be faith. There's got to be that sense of, this might not be right, I think, but I'm not sure. That's the atmosphere of this story. But do you see the impact of it, the reason it's so important that you realize this is because what it produces in Eli by the end of the story is a man that I would want to be like. Eli, at the beginning of this book, is not a man I want to be like. He's a cowardly father. He's weak. He's fragile. There's nothing in him that you look at and think, oh, wow, Eli, yeah. But do you notice the effect of Samuel's brave words on him? coupled with the effects of what have already come to him, produce these incredible words that Eli says. I wonder if you and I could say these words. If God had just said, I'm so sorry, but this is going to happen to you. He says, he is the Lord. 
Let him do what is good in his eyes. What a way to go to glory. In many ways, his life could be deemed a failure. He has mucked up the priesthood in his own family. It's been transferred now to a new and faithful priest, to young Samuel. It's changing. And yet we see this magnificent sentence, he says, that conveys to me, do you know what? There's amazing good that's being produced by these tough words. There's amazing good. Even as he reaches the old age, there is hope. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There is hope for you, my friends. You may be able to go, I identify with Eli. There are so many regrets in my lifetime you would not believe. And I want to say to you, listen, you can't go back in time. But what God is saying here is, not just this is not just the impact of the word on Samuel, it's the impact of the word on Eli as well. As an older man, the impact of the word on him, just from this little boy, it's like he receives it with humility, even though the container is just this little boy from Radiant Kids. I've got a word for you, sir. Don't know why I did a Cockney accent. I've got something for you. The impact is... I receive that. Oh, is that said over you, my friend? Is it said over you as you get older in your life? Are you willing to say, I won't push back. I won't get defensive. I won't start going, but, but, but. The heart of Eli is an amazing heart. Whatever the Lord says, his ways are good as the judgment comes to him. Isn't that mind-blowing? I want to be like that. I want it to be that even if I've made mistakes, that when the Lord's word through others, through directly to me, that the impact on it is that I am a bit more like Eli. I believe that's the Lord's heart for you. Is that you would be someone who can say, yeah, some of you here today, the word of the Lord is a bit of a stranger to you. You may even come to church. But if your heart has become hardened, you're wearing a bulletproof vest. And what happens is you're not like Eli. When, when things happen, even like this, there's not that humility of saying, Lord, I trust you. There's the defensive Tom. There's the pushback. I believe the Lord is saying, will you receive the word of the Lord even through a Hawaiian-shirted Englishman? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? The, the, if we are so fussy and, and cynical about the way that these things have to come, I won't believe that God really speaks unless this. We, we end up becoming lonely, proud, deluded older people. And I love this, I love this detail of what happens to Eli. Because I believe that for many of us here, it's, it's a picture of actually, God doesn't undo everything. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, no, you didn't really screw up either. You didn't really do that. I'll just pretend it's all fine. No, no, you did. You really did. But I commend you for receiving my rebuke in love. I commend you. What a rare thing it is to be like Eli who when the word comes through this little boy, do you realize Eli knows this boy is going to replace me? He's replacing me. He is the new faithful priest that God's just said, I'm going to raise up in your place. 
He could have been so defensive. He could have been so defensive to him. How dare you? But no, something's, something beautiful is happening at work. Oh, we need this in America. We need millions of soft-hearted people. And there is no other way a man or a woman can be soft-hearted apart from the Word of God. It is the Word of God, the Spirit of God, that uniquely changes hearts. It is not ultimately education, although I love education. It is not ultimately getting things right. It is ultimately the Word of God, the Spirit of God, together changing heart after heart after heart. And God wants to produce that here so that we then take it out there. Should we stand?